Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast explores the increasingly popular world of nonfiction books and the issues underpinning it, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight on this year's prize journey as we announce the 2021 longlist and shortlist and winner later this year. The Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing for the last 22 years, spanning across the diverse fields of history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography, and the arts. Today, we're going to be delving into the topic of writing and researching about the royals. The British public's fascination with the royal family is, of course, as long-standing as the institution itself. However, with the popularity of the Netflix original drama, The Crown, interest seems to have heightened. Joining us today remotely is journalist and author of several biographies of the royal family, Penny Juner, as well as contributing to publications such as The Evening Standard, Private Eye, The Sunday Times, and many more. Penny has authored biographies of Diana, Princess of Wales, and Charles, Prince of Wales, as well as their sons, Harry and William. She also wrote the 2005 title, The Firm, The Troubled Life of the House of Windsor. Also joining us today is satirist and writer Craig Brown. Craig's biography of Princess Margaret, Countess of Snowdon, Ma'am Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret, was published in 2017 and it won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize in 2018. He's also the author of 1234, The Beatles in Time, which won the Bailey Gifford Prize in 2020. Penny. Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where, where are we joining you from, Penny? Tell us where you are. I'm in Wiltshire, um, and I have to tell you that I've got a large dog lying beside me and two Siamese cats, both of whom can be quite vocal. So, <laughs> so if, um, if I suddenly start barking, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the explanation. And, and Craig, where are you? Where are we speaking to you from? Uh, I'm in Aldborough looking out over a very blue sky and the sea and uh, a boat, a large boat on the horizon. I was wondering what that was doing there. How gorgeous, how gorgeous. Welcome to both of you. Uh, let's start by talking about uh, the way in which the appetite of the public has changed uh, when it comes to the royals uh, over the years, because clearly there has been a shift. And, and I wonder whether that shift is is partly due to the way in which social media has transformed our lives or whether it's something something different. Penny, what do you, what do you think? Um, well, I think that we have become... I mean, there's always been an interest in the royal family. Uh, there have always been people who have camped out uh, for royal weddings and, and so on. There have always been people who have uh, bought royal memorabilia and people who who travel to every event that the royal family appear at. And those sort of people have always bought royal books. Um, but mostly they've bought sort of picture books, easy reading books. Um, I think that I think that the crown has um, has started a, a, has interested a whole different lot of people. Um, and, and of course, they are reading. I mean, they're, they're lapping up what is essentially 
um, faction. Indeed. I mean, Craig, let's let's talk about your your personal interest in in uh, the royal family and your desire to to dissect the life of Princess Margaret. I mean, where where did that come from? Well, originally, um, uh, the book I did before my Princess Margaret one was called uh, One on One, and it was a kind of daisy chain of 101 people, each one of who, whom had met the next, if you can see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had Sir Rudyard Kipling meeting Mark Twain, Mark Twain um, uh, meeting uh, 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 Helen Keller and, and so forth. Um, and I wanted to do, originally with Princess Margaret, I wanted to do the sort of same, but in reverse. I wanted 100 people who'd met one person and all their different views on her. And I thought Margaret uh, was really suitable for that because everyone seemed to have met her, uh, you know, uh, during the her, certainly during her peak. Um, but then I realized, it, uh, having sort of signed up to do it, I realized that wasn't going to work because everyone's memories of her were all remarkably similar. And and the sort of cycle cycle of conversation uh, went. Um, I mean, she had this odd thing of as she got more drunk, she became more haughty rather than more relaxed. Anyway, and so it was like. So if I'd pursued that, it would be like doing a book with the same anecdote repeated on every page. So I had to then broaden it out and and or, or make it smaller, whichever way you see it, of doing a more straightforward thing of uh, Princess Margaret. But of course, Princess Margaret isn't interesting enough to sustain a whole book in herself. So I had to see her from lots of different angles. I had to do sort of parallel lives, so invented lives. So I had kind of fun, fun with it. So it's not strictly speaking a a biography. It's sort of having fun uh, while you're thinking about someone. I mean, I, I wonder whether you think um, or how you both think uh, the royal family and interest in the royals um, fits into our increasing obsession with celebrities and, and how they are kind of the top of the tree of the celebrity culture in which we live. Do you think that that's, that's true, Jen, Penny? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a real danger. I mean, I think I think what's happened to the royal family over the last... Well, as long as I've been writing, I've been writing about them for 40 years, um, to my horror, I realise. But um, the interest has changed. And I think, you know, 40 years ago, well, I I started when Diana came on the scene. And I think she was the beginning of a very different attitude to the royals. She did become a celebrity. And I think the real danger for the family um, is that they they cannot actually afford to be celebrities. These people are in the limelight from birth till death, and celebrities, as we all know, you know, come and go. And celebrities also are quite divisive. People love one, you know. I, most celebrities are a bit marmitey, <clears throat> um, and and y- the the monarchy is all about unifying the country. So in an ideal world. They need to not be celebrities, and and I mean the, the what the Queen has done so well. She she has is under no illusion that the fame that she has is because of her personally. It's because of who she is. So she hasn't let the 
the fame go to her head that's really that that is interesting and 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 I, I wonder Craig whether you whether you agree with this when you look at the kind of huge interest in uh, the crown uh, what I just wonder about that kind of group of people who would never normally have been interested in the royal family are now not only interested but actually believe everything that they've seen on the crown that that whole the line has been blurred between fact and fiction in in this drama I know it was rather um astonishing to me that in the uh, Oprah Winfrey with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex that Oprah once seemed, seemed to suggest that her research had been almost confined to the crown. She, she uh, <laughs> talked, talked, talked about uh, Charles and Diana in Australia, which is one of the many ludicrous uh, examples they had there. And you felt that she, you know, this experienced, most experienced TV person in the world probably, actually does believe this, uh, what's largely a sort of tissue of lies about them. Uh, I mean, especially as the series went on. And I do, I do agree with what uh, Penny said, uh, that, that uh, the Queen has been very clever in, or, or has just realised that, uh, that the ego has nothing to do with it. And in a way, she's dared to be dull. I mean, that, that her whole life has been this sort of dull, uh, dignified sort of slog in a way. Whereas the others, the others especially the younger ones and post-Diana, uh, have thought that it was a kind of glorified chat show um, and that that it all reflected on their own delightful uh, or interesting personalities, when, of course, it's not. They're just sort of emblems. I mean, George V was a sort of perfect one, very, very boring man, just doing what he was meant to do. Um, Penny, I wonder whether you think you you describe the crown as faction. I mean, I wonder whether you think that it's been it's been damaging to the way in which people have related to the royal family before it came along. I think it's been hugely damaging to the royal family. <clears throat> I mean, the the first three episodes I thought were absolutely marvelous. You know, I, I watched them. Um, avidly and and rarely enjoyed them and I think you know we all learnt quite a lot about the family but it was when it got to the fourth episode which dealt with Charles and Diana there I th- I, I thought the uh, you know the the writer had absolutely I mean his tone had changed it, there was a scene if you remember of uh, Margaret Thatcher who was then Prime Minister up at Balmoral um, as a guest of the Queen with mm-hmm. her husband Dennis, and they they they're obviously very out of place and don't know what to do, and they've got a a, a list of how to behave and what to wear and when to wear it, um, or rather incomplete list actually, and and so they don't know whether drinks before dinner means that they must be dressed in their in their smart clothes, but they decide they should. They go down at the appointed moment, go into the drawing room and there are in there dressed up you know to the nines and there are um the rest of the royal family or the royal family all in their tweeds and sort of shooting gear and having cups of tea and they all sort of turn on the prime minister like a pack of hyenas and the next day and all you know they're sniggering and laughing at them at her her mistake and then the next day she goes off um, on the Grousemoor, heading for the Grousemoor, dressed in a in a sort of cornflower blue suit with a little handbag matching on her arm and high heels. And 
you know, this would just never happen. The Queen is the most well-mannered woman probably in the country. She spent her whole adult life putting people at ease and making them feel that they're doing the right thing. So, you know, I, I think things like that were really damaging, not to mention, of course, you know, the, the portrait of Charles and his relationship with Diana, and which, you know, if you if you read, if you believed everything that you saw on that in that series, you would really believe that the next king is the most awful man, heartless, cold, um, and, and wicked. And he's not. Mm. I, well, well, we'll talk about we'll talk about your your um, books in in a moment, Penny. I just want to turn to Craig about the crown in particular. When you watch the portrayal of of Princess Margaret, I mean, how how much did did it resonate with you in terms of the research that you had done for your book? Um, I thought, uh, by and large, Princess Margaret, who's fairly minor figure, um, was done uh, pretty well. Both actresses were uh, extremely good. I thought. I mean, there was one aspect uh which seemed to me nonsense which is uh which peter morgan the uh, writer put in which is having um uh margaret uh very jealous of the queen uh and and jealous of her status and uh and and i found no though my um book is you know is is hardly a hagiography of princess margaret um <laughs> i found no evidence of that at all that uh, that actually uh, Princess Margaret, throughout her life, was rather in awe of the Queen, um, uh, was horrified whenever she did something, uh, she, Princess Margaret, did something wrong, really didn't want to upset things. Whereas in The Crown, they at one point, the, I can't remember, the Queen was on holiday or something, and uh, Princess Margaret did her own brilliantly witty speech and everyone cheered. And this was, uh, you know, it was sort of seen by Peter Morgan as some uh, quest for Peter, for Princess Margaret to, to take her sister's place, and it's that simply didn't happen. Princess Margaret didn't ever do witty speeches. She never uh, tried to barge in when the Queen wasn't there, uh, and so so there are aspects um, of the Princess Margaret character with, that were wrong, but by and large they were less wrong than someone. I mean, I thought Prince Philip was uh, occasionally ludicrously inaccurate. I mean, for in, the worst uh, uh, example of that, which I thought was almost wicked, was that there was a sort of flashback to when he was at Gordonston. He had misbehaved. This is the Peter Morgan version. He had misbehaved. His sister had to fly over to, uh, to beg the headmaster um, to let him stay at Gordonston. Uh, and her flight crashed uh, and she died. And at the funeral, uh, the uh, Prince Philip's father said, "I'll never forgive you." Uh, she was the daughter I loved most. I, well, the only thing true about that was that she was in a plane crash and died. It had absolutely nothing to do with Prince Philip, the the, the plane crash. And I thought that that was, you know, it, it was close to wicked that because you're blaming this man who's now ninety nine or hundred uh, for the death of his sister, and I I think. No one would tolerate that in anyone other than that depiction of someone in anyone other than a, a member of the royal family because they're seen as kind of fair game. Uh, that that's really totally interesting. Agree with you. Hmm. I, I, let, let's look at the, the the difficulties or the challenges involved in in trying to uh, accurately write about uh, the royal family. I mean, Penny. There must be just unique challenges when you're when you're trying to write about the royal family in terms of research and access. 
Yes, there are. I mean, it, it's very difficult to get access, almost impossible. The, the most you can hope for, what, what I always do is write to them and write to the palace and let them know that I am planning to do a book and ask whether I can come and talk to them about it. And what I hope to get is some cooperation. And with some books, I've got that. And with some books, I haven't. And when you um, say write to them, you're writing to the press office? To the private, to the private secretary. Private secretary, right. Or to, or to the press office, yeah. Um, probably in the first, with the first book I, I did, which was Diana, Princess of Wales, um, which I began immediately after the wedding, her wedding to Charles, uh, I, I did write to the press secretary. And actually, that was the only one where I was, was sort of turned away. They said they thought she was too young to have a book written about her, which was kind of fair enough. She was only 20. Um, but I, I had a contract in my hand and I was determined <laughs> to do it. Um, so, um, so, so that I didn't get help with. But every other one, and, and in fact, at the end, at the very end, they did. And I ended up, um, I mean, and I, I was in such a fury because I was trying to write a proper book. And I had been all over the countryside to all the places Diana had been, you know, her schools, her houses, her her friends. And I'd knocked on a hundred doors and so many people had shut their doors in my face. Um, but and, and suddenly when she announced she was pregnant, about 14 other people announced they were writing books. And I never bumped into a biographer anywhere in all my travels. And so I wrote to Buckingham Palace and I said, I suspect that they're all sitting at home with the scissors and paste and putting together all the garbage that's been written in the newspapers before the wedding. And I'm thoroughly fed up. Here I am trying to write a decent book and you won't help me. <laughs> Whereupon they actually wrote back and said, OK, send us some uh, the questions you would most like to ask the princess and we'll see if, if we can get them to answer them, which they did. She did. And, uh, and and actually, it was the beginning of a, a, a rather good relationship with the palaces that has lasted, well, 40 years now. And, and does it mean that you, I mean, does it in any way mean that you feel that you can't be critical or, or, or do, are, you, are you certain that you are as truthful as you, as you want to be? I don't feel that I am compromised by that. Um, it, I, I feel, I mean, the, the, the real problem is that there are lots of people who will tell you that they know the person you're writing about, the member of the family that you're writing about. Um, if they are prepared to talk to you, then they're probably the wrong people to be talking to. They don't really know them very well. Mm. The, the, the royals are so careful, and it's it's got more and more so over the 40 years. But now, no one, anyone that you approach... Um, who is vaguely connected with the family, if, if you ask to speak to them, you're writing a biography, you ask to speak to them, they always go to that person that you're writing about and say, I've had this approach from Penny Juna, uh, do you want me to talk to her? And therefore, if you've got a big no-no from the palace in the first place, nobody will talk to you. And you end up writing a book that is based on people whose knowledge is is peripheral. So you're kind of between the devil and the deep blue sea. You have to get in there quite close. Um, and of course, you know, PR people are going to try and lead you a certain line. 
So, but it, but they have never ever um, censored me in any way, and I've always written what I have found from all the people I've spoken to. Craig, how how difficult was it for you to? I mean, you 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 know, you've written a particular kind of book about about Princess Margaret, but I also just wonder how much of what Penny is saying rings true for you in terms of the people who knew her. Well, I mean, Penny is much more assiduous than. I am in uh, in research, but there was also um, with Princess Margaret. She was first; she was dead, and uh, she'd been dead for sort of fifteen years or so. Um, she also mixed with a much more uh, louche set than any other member of the royal family. So there was an amazing kind of fund of, especially diarists. She had almost a sort of suicidal tendency towards mixing with. Uh, kind of waspish camp diarists. I mean, like uh, Roy Strong, uh, James Lees Milne, Cecil Beaton. Uh, and they were like, I mean, uh, they were like sort of demonic characters, really, because they loved seeing her uh, in order to slag her off in their diaries, really. I mean, occasionally, uh, Roy Strong starts with admiring her and then ends up hating her. But uh, my my book was in a way less a biography than a, um, a a sort of skip around what everyone thought of her, which I suppose ends up being a biography. Um, it was a wonderful read. Oh, that's very nice of you. But I mean, there were whole areas of her life. If I mean, I I just skipped. If there was a sort of say, she did a tour of Canada, which a lot of royal biographies would devote a chapter or two to and say what she was wearing each day. I'd just skip it. If I thought a boring, a boring <laughs> tour of Canada, I just won't put that in, uh, which, which might have been a slightly damaging to her in that uh, it didn't show the, the, the great swathes of dullness in her life. Um, yeah, so I was just I was doing a particular angle, I suppose. Mm, I, I wonder. I wonder if we can just broaden it out and look beyond um, the shores of this country, because clearly the royal family are of huge interest to lots of people in lots of different countries. But the Americans, in particular, are are enamoured of the royal family, and I I I. I I know that when you know the program that I present on the World Service, it's a serious geopolitical news and current affairs um, program. But but whenever there is a big royal story, you know, editors always say to me, "But you know, the Americans love the royal family. We've got to say something." And and my my feeling <laughs> is that they get it in so many other places that they don't necessarily need it need it on the program that that we do. But I just Penny, talk us through the difference in, in terms of how much the Americans are um, not just obsessed, but they just lap it up. They do lap it up, but I wonder whether they love us, love the family as much today as they did two weeks ago before Oprah. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, I think that, that um, interview was incredibly damaging for the royal family's image in America. Um, say, say say more. Say say something more about that. What what? Why do you think so specifically? Well, I think I th- I found that interview just extraordinary. These this couple left Britain because they wanted privacy, and they then went on Oprah's program and spoke for two hours about their lives within the royal family, lobbying. Um, you know, three sort of major concepts that were absolutely untouchable. Um, Suicidal thoughts, mental health, 
and racism. And they just made the suggestion that the royal family was racist, I think is, is about the most damaging thing that has happened to the family and to the institution in, well, as long as I've been alive. Mm. Craig, what did you make of it? No, I, I completely agree with uh, Penny. I thought it was, um, it was unbelievably cynical of uh, Harry and Meghan. They seem to have worked out what, what, what areas they could get the royal family on and then work through those areas. And then whenever they couldn't give evidence, they'd sort of back, uh, you know, stand back and say, well, actually, you know, I'll keep the names private, all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I, I, yes, it was, it was, it was uh, revolting, I, I thought. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. Gosh, that's a very strong word um, to, to use about it. I mean, it, it did feel as though it was feeding into the the sense that people have that this is a, a, a soap opera and this was an extension of that. It's, I, think it, I think it certainly fed in. I think they couldn't have given the same interview if the Crown hadn't been on before because it fed into that, the increasing thing with the Crown uh, that uh, it's rather a sort of nasty, spiteful, old-fashioned, uh, frumpy family, uh, and so, uh, and so you could, um, and and also they don't really show the queen's interest in the Commonwealth or that that sort of thing, um, and so you could imagine that it was a if you're just based your knowledge uh, on uh, the crown uh, that it was sort of rife with racism, and you could I- imagine that somehow that they had downgraded Meghan. Uh, uh, because her mother was black and that sort of thing. Um, but I think anyone who sort of has a sort of even the smallest knowledge uh, realizes it's it doesn't really work like that. It's it's just a, not an accurate picture. So, uh, Penny, just in in the context of what you've already said about the the Meghan and Harry interview. So, on the one hand, they had this platform as celebrities in the United States and and in the rest of the world to say their piece and say what they wanted to say. And on the other hand, the royal family really don't have that. They might have a platform, but they don't have the same license to say what they want to say. Well, they choose not to say. They, they, they I mean, I think, you know, I mean, they, the, the problem is that if they respond to every slight that is made against them, every untruth, every um, <clears throat> mistake that a journalist makes or a, or a broadcaster, they would spend their days doing nothing but correcting inaccuracies. They have taken the view that it's better to keep their heads down and say nothing and let everything wash over them and that, you know, time will march on. I mean, this family takes a very, very long view of life. Uh, I mean, for instance, you know, the Prince of Wales and his marriage to Diana, it, it was a disaster and we have Diana's version of why it was a disaster. Prince Charles himself has never, ever spoken about the marriage other than to admit the adultery. Um, but but he's never tried to defend himself or explain what happened. And this is perhaps why the Crown took such a, a, a brutal um, take on it. <clears throat> but his view, I think, is when he is long dead and everybody's long dead, the historians will have access to all the papers, all the medical records, all the diaries. They will know what 
what happened and he doesn't feel that that he should put it you know go playing sort of tit for tat because it no good ever really comes of that Craig, as an observer, when you talk about the interview as being revolting, I mean, do you do you think that there is now a sense that in the culture in which we live, that because this couple have said what they have said, that their truth is accepted by people? Uh, yes, I guess it is. And actually, I don't, I don't really have Penny or the royal family's uh, um, belief in... Uh, the rightness of history and that history is in a way there's no such thing as history it's, it's just historians and you could in one year you could just as easily get a book which was saying how awful queen victoria was and another book saying how marvelous she was well that's that's history uh, or the same about george the third or something like that um and so uh, uh, everything is always fluctuating but i think so in a way the only it's easier to guard the present than it is the, uh, uh, the past. And I certainly think that the uh, Harry and Meghan uh, interview, particularly in America, has, has done great damage. And I think uh, they intended it to do great damage. There was also, I, I, should, I think, an element of blackmail in it, which I don't think people have pointed out. But when they say, well, uh, this person was racist, but we're not going to name them, but it wasn't uh, the Queen or Prince Philip. Well, you know, it's like a kind of Agatha Christie. Uh, and, and they know that at any one time they, they can say who it was or who they claim it was. And then so that rather shuts up that person. Uh, in the future. So it is, a, it is a form of blackmail, I think. Penny, do you think that it damaged the royal family in this country in quite the same way? I think that there were a lot of people in this country who believed every word that Harry and Meghan said, just as there were people in this country who believed every single word that Diana said when she, it, when she yeah. set out to destroy the family and, and to damage Charles. Um, but I think there are equally many, many people in this country who took it with a pinch of salt, but actually more than a pinch of salt. I mean, I think people, there are a number of people who are angry with Harry and and ha- angry with, with Meghan as well. Uh, the, I mean, because they not only lobbed this, this, um, this grenade into the centre of the monarchy and the family, I mean, they also put a giant slur, I think, on on the UK, the suggestion that we are a racist society, that our press is fundamentally racist, uh, and that, that, uh, you know, our head of state or the the family that make up the the institution are racist. It's very, very difficult to prove a negative. So how do they come back from that? How do you have an inquiry that really gets to the bottom of it? You can't. I'm interested in the the contrast between the the two women who uh, married into the royal family being the um, the the catalyst for all all the kind of turmoil that we've seen, and and how 
how strict the copyright issues are inside the, the the crown, how difficult it is to actually get information. And and in, and it's outsiders coming in who are blowing things out of the water. I mean, how difficult is is kind of information about the royal family protected in a ways that in, in ways that information about other things is not? I'd say, if I can say uh, that I think there's, there's something interesting between Meg and Diana and to some extent uh, Sarah Ferguson were all uh, in their way fantasists and that's why they wanted to be princesses. They had, uh, Diana certainly had uh, pictures of Charles up in her dormitory at school and that kind of thing. You know, it's very odd behaviour for, for a teenager. Uh, Megan, it seems uh, likely, certainly some of her uh, school friends that say that she had pictures of, you know, while professing now to have had no interest in the royal family, that she was obsessively interested in Harry and William and Diana. Um, and and I think, so they come in uh, to the royal family expecting some kind of fantasy life as a princess. And of course, the idea of being a princess is in, on lots of schoolgirls' uh, minds as a sort of aim in life. And so, of course, it's bound to go wrong, I think. I th- so I think there is... And so when you talk about them sort of blowing up the royal family, it's, it was, it's almost predestined to happen because of, of their psychology, uh, their, their, need, their want to enter the royal family. I mean, I, I know uh, at least someone who, um, you know, who, who, who could have entered the royal family but realised, and I'm sure there are lots of others, uh, but, uh, you know, realised the, the, the kind of terrible strain uh, it will put on your life and didn't for that reason. But for, but for those three or two anyway, uh, they were attracted to this this thing which which other people were put off by. I would say there was, uh, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, Craig, but I think there was a further, um, some, further thing that all these three had in common, certainly the last two, um, Diana and Meghan, was that they were damaged people. The one person who has really succeeded in recent times in coming into this family is Kate Middleton. And she comes from a very stable, happy, loving family. And I think that is the reason why she has been so successful. And I wonder whether Harry was was looking, searching since the age of 12, when he lost his mother, for it for another mother and found in Meghan someone who had very similar frailties to those that his mother had. Do you think that's it's really really interesting analysis? Do do you think that um, Penny that the the royal family um, will come through this? I mean, probably not unscathed, but but kind of bounce back at some point in the future, given that they do take the long view. Yes, I think they will. I think they will. I mean, you know, the, the monarchy itself. We've we've the core people are, you know, in in they're they're loved they're doing a good job and they I don't think they will be put off by this but I think I think the relationships within the family are irreparably damaged if I mean I I thought that there may have been a coming back for Harry um until I mean after the immediately after the interview but then when Gail King the presenter of the CBS morning program talked about the substance of the telephone conversation that Harry had had with his brother and his father, saying it was unsatisfactory. 
or not, whatever the word she used. Um, I think that really put the tin hat on on the chances of there being a reconciliation because it's it's such a breach of trust. Harry and Meghan have clearly spoken to Gail King and told them for broadcast, unless she has totally betrayed them, for broadcast to the world what what a private conversation, um, how, how a private conversation turned out. Craig, what do you what do you think? Do you think that they'll it's a family for all its uh, dysfunctions that will will be able to recover from this? Well, I think yeah, I think if you do take uh, which they obviously do the the long historical line. I mean, there were parts uh, in Queen Vic, Queen Victoria's now seen as the most solid monarch of the lot, but there were parts in her life as uh, in her early life as uh, queen where she was booed. I mean, one of her ladies in waiting. Uh, they thought was pregnant. In fact, she had some catastrophic uh, cancer, um, and so they they ditched her as lady in waiting. And uh, and there were, and uh, you know, she, Queen Victoria almost couldn't be seen in public. She was so uh, hated. But you know, these things come and go. I mean, when you think of the abdication or or the character of Edward the Seventh, or you know, there there have been lots of dips. Or especially after um, uh, Diana uh, died. Uh, that seemed a more extreme uh, catastrophe for them uh, than this one. And and after all, ha- you know, Harry is, I don't know what he is, fifth or sixth or seventh in line to the throne. He's going to be like Princess Margaret, you know, uh, by the end of his life, he'll be sort of 20th in line to the throne. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll become marginal figures like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. They'll become, they'll, and they might even become marginal to Hollywood, to the celebrity life in in America, because you know who wants to uh, watch a Netflix uh, series which is just full of worthy people saying worthy things? They'll they'll have to up their game to keep in the limelight, and and I think they'll they'll be sort of tarnished. We will watch the space, no doubt. Um, that's all we have time for on this episode. Thank you again for joining us, uh, Craig and Penny. And thank you again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for the latest on future episodes and news regarding the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website for updates straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in non-fiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. This year, the 2021 prize longlist will be announced in September, followed by the shortlist in October. The winner of the prize this year will then be announced in November. Bye-bye for now. See you next time. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.